But Saturday Extra spent the last few weeks asking that vital question, what is happening in China? As its economy seems to struggle post-COVID, certainly judged from the outside, yet its leaders are tightening their grip and the leaders don't seem to care whether this is good or bad for bottom lines. Ideology over economic growth, you could say, a real break by President Xi Jinping with past leaders like Deng Xiaoping. Well, today another perspective offered by a European businessman with exceptionally long experience of the country. Jorge Vudka is leaving China after almost 40 years of living there, having led the European Union's Chamber of Commerce in China for many years, and as someone who offers advice to governments and business. He's visiting Australia as a guest of the Asia Society, and he joined me in the studio earlier this week. Jörg Wutka, welcome to Saturday Extra. Thank you very much. Do you still enjoy living in China? Well, I came first time in 82 and it was, of course, uh, deeply embedded in communism or what was left of communism and then ventured on. I've been living on and off 33 years and I'm leaving next year. And I must say that on the one hand, uh, I leave uh, with tears in my eyes because I have been so enriched by the Chinese, the culture, the engagement. You are always stimulated by this kind of economic buzz. Overstimulated. The, overstimulated. I mean, you're a junkie in a way. You know it's not good for you. Work-wise, it's overwhelming. At the same time, this kind of uh, political closed-up nature of the system doesn't make it more fun. It's harder to get to know uh, top politicians and you get the more or less the same storyline. So in a way, full circle, I'm, I'm leaving town next year as a happy man. So what year did you arrive then? 82 and I lived there on and off since 87. Right, so you went right through Tiananmen Square yes. and the opening up by Deng Xiaoping and mm-hmm. so on and so forth. Okay, uh, look, I know that listeners would want me to ask you this. Are you free to say what you really think about China? You know, as, as it has become more closed, one wonders whether people can say what they really think and still return. I think I have established a reputation of being as frank as possible. Certainly a couple of things, particularly when it comes to the president himself, you sort of keep for yourself. But I think it is underestimating the ability of the Chinese to actually accept criticism or recommendations if you're holding back. And that's why I think if you have your facts straight, say it. And you've never suffered for saying for being blunt? Well, when I was first time president of the European Chamber in 2007 to 2010, I was called in by no one else but uh, Minister of Commerce, uh, Boisila himself, who is now in prison. But uh, I must say that they always handled it with great care and uh, I never got into real trouble. Oh, look, I have to ask you about Bo Lai because he's always fascinated me, the former leader of Western China and the former commerce minister. Do you know where he is? Does anybody well, know? Well, we guess that he's in the prison outside Beijing. I mean, he's, he's a spent man. He was uh, imprisoned uh, more than 10 years ago. He was flamboyant. He was very different from anybody else, uh, possibly the well-dressed uh, Chinese politicians I ever met, very eloquent, uh, but certainly very driven by his own ideology. So in a way, sure, there was a clash in 2012 and he lost out. And and he's finished, you think? He's done. Righto. So how would you characterise the main shifts that you've seen? I'm keen to hear the words you use. 
Well, the shift over the last uh, years was always from uh, basically uh, Stone Age communism in the, uh, the 70s, opening up Deng Xiaoping stands for that, to really globalizing, that's where the name Junji pops up, to a, a bit of a plateau and opening up, and now we have a bit of a closing nature. China is emphasizing self-reliance. China wants to be less dependent on the world, but wants to make the world more dependent uh, on China itself. So the way it's it's a bit uh, sad to see that the promise of China opening up was never fulfilled. But again, yes, the political system, the vibes have changed, but the population hasn't changed. There is still this incredible, vibrant entrepreneurship in the Chinese uh, elite. Uh, you have fantastic products coming out. You still have this kind of can-do attitude that you find in cities like Shanghai and Shenzhen and so forth. So in a way, yes, it's going to be a different China. It's not full circle all the way back to communism. But it's it's possibly for me a sad story because I see that China has a bigger potential than it's actually striving to uh, develop now. Yes, I want to come back to that. What has not changed? I mean, you've hinted at it there. What, what has not changed is really the innovation capabilities of the Chinese. Uh, people underestimate the way how Chinese can actually change products, change business processes and come up with something better. As a German, I must say, we are very worried about the kind of leapfrogging that China does in the car industry. Mm. Now, 50% of all EVs globally are produced in China and we're just about to see the Chinese cars entering the German or European market. And you can see that uh, actually they have been, uh, while we are still sitting on the internal combustion engines, developing batteries and everything around it. And so in a way, that's why I'm always trying to tell politicians uh, coming in from Europe to China, we have to maintain a presence in China. It's just so incredibly um, driving, competitive. Uh, to disengage with China would be a big mistake. Are the Germans worried? Because it's been the export to China has been just a crucial part of the German model, which of course is also coming under strain. So, I mean, how much is there attention there? I think they were not worried all the way until end of last year. And I think the motor show in Shanghai has changed everything. People have been, first of all, visiting China. They could actually drive these cars. They could see that they are in some ways uh, better than our own cars. And I think this kind of shock possibly has ignited some competitiveness. I hope that the Munich motor show that took place uh, last month uh, uh, basically has given us a wake-up call. So at this stage, I guess it's fight or flight. So either you leave China as some French and... Uh, for it and, and Koreans did or you hang in there you're trying to fight back and try to see that you still remain a global re uh, relevant company and I think Volkswagen, Mercedes BMW decided just that so it's going to be interesting Fascinating um, What's the biggest mistake and verdict that you see being offered by the West about China at the moment? I think it depends the West where you're looking at uh, China. I think in America, it's all about security, security. It's all about China threatening uh, and to some extent justified uh, uh, the way that the world has been established over the last decades. In Europe, it's more about uh, uh, how do we engage with China? Are they threatening us economically? Uh, and again, uh, the big question is about uh, their uh, fence sitting on Ukraine war, mm. uh, where we, we feel and you're very strongly that China should actually... Uh, engage more with the West in order to find a solution and not just sort of uh, pamper uh, President Putin. And again, when you are in Korea and Japan uh, uh, that are labeled as West, even though they're East, I think it's all about survival. It's all about survival of the economic system and all about sort of how to deal with a country that actually is really um, uh, being very assertive in them. And now basically China had uh, managed the unthinkable. They managed to get Korea and Japan to talk to each other. <laughs> yes, quite right. Um, so, but what 
what you're proposing suggests that, say, the Germans and others have got fair. That is a not irrational view. China does represent a threat to their status quo, doesn't it? In certain areas it does. And that's why I think it was very important in order to actually uh, label de-risking. When I was with von der Leyen's office in January in Brussels, I think it was clear to me that decoupling is not acceptable to Europe. Uh, We are too embedded in our supply chains. And I thought it was very important that actually we define the risks where we are too dependent on China. For example, pharmaceutical precursors, magnesium, vitamin B, rare earth, where we have a dependency on China for more than 90%. So where we have to find like-minded countries or regions that we can work with in order to be less dependent on China. Australia comes to mind and rare earth certainly. Mm. But at the same time, de-risking means also see where we have no risk uh, doing with China. And not a clear cut, but actually define uh, uh, this area and, and do something about it. We don't depend on China. China depends more on us. And I think that's also important to realise. You think that's still the case, do you? Well, if you send 6.4 million containers to Europe in 2022 and you just import 1.6 million containers, I think there are more jobs on the line in in China on the European market because the Chinese consumer is struggling than the other way around. And certainly on technology, uh, still China is more dependent on Europe than we are dependent on China. So we shouldn't undersell our skills in our position. What are the key indicators you look for as a guide to whether... China is in real bother economically and which would flow through to the culture or whether it's just going through a, an interesting transition because there's great divided opinion on that, as you know. Well, of course, China is, is in economic trouble right now. There's no other way to describe it. Certainly in the manufacturing sector and services, they do quite well and partly self-inflicted because uh, last year, uh, COVID really constrained us a lot. Uh, I was myself absolutely stranded in Beijing. Um, uh, they spent $230 billion on quarantine testing and everything, the GDP of Iran. And in a way, that's now missing. The money is missing in the provinces and the cities, which are on the edge of bankruptcies, at least some of them. Uh, so the way we, we are emerging from a post-traumatic stress disorder economy to some extent, again, the Chinese uh, vibrancy in, in their decision-making among private entrepreneurs is so strong, I think we still have faith that they come out of that. But uh, at the same time, we can see that aging takes place. China is the fastest aging society in the world, that this uh, US-China trade and chip war is causing real concerns to everyone, including European co- companies uh, engaging. So there's a bit of a perfect storm and uh, as it's we need China to succeed to get out of this uh, in order to maintain a strong positive economic force globally and they're clearly struggling. Uh, my guest is Jörg Wutke, who is a visitor from, to Australia at the moment, uh, a long-time resident of China and President Emeritus of the European Chamber of Commerce in China. Okay, now some of the commentaries I want to read to you because the wording being chosen is very interesting. This is from foreign policy man called Crad Singleton. The Chinese economic model and its impact upon culture are looking at Xi's comprehensive national security priorities that the strategic authority of the state, the Chinese state, trumps economic growth, that it has transferred security uh, from a mere policy goal to a whole mode of governance. Do you agree with that interpretation? 
Well, as a matter of fact, we labeled it in September 2022 when I launched the position paper of the European Chamber in Beijing. We said ideology trumps the economy. We saw that as, as a downside potential, uh, meaning that in the old days, economy was always first and foremost on the mind. How do we see growth happening in China? And as a matter of fact, we, clearly we see that Xi Jinping is more worried about security and stability of the system and uh, is not a risk taker by opening up. Globalization, in a way, is not really first and foremost on his mind. So in a way, for him, clearly, he is willing to sacrifice economic growth for the sake of control and stability in the economic and political system in China. A game changer when you look at Deng Xiaoping. Indeed. And the reason he seems to have done so little, he seems almost um, standing back, you know, dispassionate Mm. about Mm. all of these Mm. things that are causing so many headlines in the West, um, is that uh, he sees this not as a disturbing slowdown, but an opportunity to correct economic imbalances in a way that favours the CCP, the party's longer term interest, which doesn't sound as if that's in the best interests of uh, Chinese growth. Well, it's very difficult to look into the head of the president and now everything depends on one man, what he's uttering and the whole system is trying to decipher his uh, sometimes contradictory uh, uh, slogans and, and issues. First of all, I think he has a genuine interest in economic growth. He's not uh, sort of uh, talking about zero growth. Uh, he just wants to have a growth which is sustainable, which makes China less dependent on outside sources and deliveries, uh, for example, on energy. Uh, and clearly he wants to be uh, an economic uh, force when it comes to technologies. That's why the US is breathing down his neck. So I guess that for him, um, uh, it's all about control. It's all about state-owned enterprises. He doesn't like private entrepreneurs. He has realized what damage it does in order to tell these guys that uh, they have to contribute, meaning common prosperity, with money. And now they're luring them back, trying to appeal to them to come back uh, as they are the ones that create the jobs in China. So in a way, for him, uh, it it is a difficult game to play Um, And uh, first and foremost, priority is ideology. And some friends of mine say that he's preparing for a war economy, uh, meaning that he wants to have the Chinese economy self-reliant and not dependent on international pressure, in particular from the United States. So in a way, he's very difficult to figure out what he wants to do. But fact is, it's all about control, keeping the party in, in office. Is it about being going back to socialist roots? Well, he's clearly a Marxist. I mean, his speeches uh, at the party congress, uh, 35 times he mentioned Marx, uh, 15 times market. That says it all. He's a staunch communist. He's a true believer. Mm. So whatever he utters when it comes to ideology, it's not show, it's not Beijing opera, it's the real thing. He's a real believer in communism. So, I mean, there's a real contest of systems underway then by what you're saying between, you know, the Western market model and uh, we used to think that the Chinese were taking that up as well. Well, they were, I think. How can we judge if he is losing authority over this, whether that princeling, those elites are with him or might they start to turn against him? Well, that's a far off uh, uh, signal that that I, I can't decipher anything of that sort in Beijing right now. It's uh, he has really cleared the the space. He has uh, gotten rid of the so-called youth league. Uh, the former prime minister Li Keqiang stands for that. Uh, there is absolutely no one left who questions him or challenges him. It remains to be seen if he's unsuccessful, if he has slip-ups, uh, if some sort of segments uh, come up and, and voice it. But I see absolutely no challenge to him for a long, long period of time. But you wouldn't see 
see it, would you? You'd only see it retrospectively. No, that, that's, that's the thing. That's the default setting in Beijing. You hardly ever pick up anything. It's very difficult to decipher what comes out of Zhongnanhai. So in a way, it's all about guesstimating of what happens there. And sure, we foreigners might be the last to figure it out. So does this make China, all that you're describing, more or less threatening in your view? It makes them not threatening. I really don't see China as a threat. It makes them more difficult to figure out how to do business in China. Uh, we are fa- entering a phase where it's more harder to get data sets. It's harder to figure out how the economy is really doing. We question certain uh, numbers, uh, but uh, it's not non-uninvestable. Un- uh, the country still has an incredible growth pattern. It is huge, just the province of Guangdong, which is uh, mm. the part of North uh, South Wales here. Um, it's 110 million people and has the GDP of Italy. And the city of Shenzhen has the GDP of South Africa. So in a way, we sometimes tend to forget that even if China slows down, there are pockets of great growth potential. Our Prime Minister is going to visit there, as you probably know, and this will be marking a very significant anniversary for Australia, the uh, formal relationship between Gough Whitlam's government and, uh, the, uh, and the Chinese in 1973. If you were giving advice to Mr Albanese about going there right now, what are the traps to avoid? What are the assets to advance? Well, it's the Chinese have a saying for this one, you walk into a meeting with two ears and one mouth. So uh, listen more than you actually speak up. Uh, try to figure out what the in-between hints and uh, subtle messages are. Uh, and then keep in mind, I think we Europeans have a good model. Uh, China is a partner, a competitor and a systemic rival. And that's how we should view it. They're not just one of any of that. They're all three uh, at the same time. So see where you can cooperate with China. I mean, in global climate change, for example, we Europeans find a lot of common ground. Uh, On innovation, China is not a research story, it's a development story. Uh, Then again, as competitor, we compete on global markets with the Chinese. We try to see this fair and square. We need partners. Uh, We need to reach out to the global south uh, and not leave it up to the Chinese there. And we are systemic rivals. After all, communism teaches that communism struggles with capitalism and will prevail. And we should take that serious and try to sort out our own internal problems. After all, we are only as weak as we think uh, we, we show ourselves. Uh, liberalism is under duress, but I think it's the stronger system. Uh, but do you sometimes feel you're speaking with forked tongue? If you've got to do that sort of balancing act, <laughs> it's a pretty difficult thing to do, isn't it? We haven't actually had a lot of practice in this. Well, I mean, that's why uh, showing up there in person, meeting in person, having lunch, dinner, whatever, makes such a difference. Online really distorted the picture and the perception of each other. And with the president, it's even more important to actually uh, try to connect with him. Uh, because uh, as we have seen in Pretoria, as we have seen now in Delhi, He's he's withdrawing a little bit from the global mm-hmm. uh, sphere. Mm-hmm. And so it's very important to actually meet him and engage because he's, after all, deciding virtually everything in China. So in a way, it's not a wasted effort in order to take this long flight up to Beijing. Look, do you, when you say he is withdrawing, and that does appear to be the case, what do you think that is all about? Is he becoming... Does he not like the world that he that he travels to or does he feel he doesn't want to leave China? He's worried about leaving China? What is that? No, he clearly is not worried about leaving China. He's travelling a lot to friendly countries uh, and settings. Uh, again, I, th- I think he's sort of fed up with the kind of Western model where he has, he has to hear uh, 10 times during the G20 meetings uh, complaints by the Canadians, Europeans, Americans, Australians about Xinjiang and Taiwan and whatnot. And I think he has said uh, to Putin what he actually has in mind. The 
world will see changes, he said to put in, that we haven't seen in 100 years. And the changes means that maybe the world will be less Western-centric, as he puts it, and will become more multipolar, and China offers an alternative. So I don't know if that really is going to work out. Uh, BRICS was a certain attempt in order to get there. Mm -hmm. But fact is that China basically has, in a way, um, given up, uh, not hope, but uh, given up some sort of cooperation overlap with the West. And that's, that's not very good for us. Um, you haven't mentioned Taiwan once. I don't know whether that's deliberate. And when I when I asked you, will they be more or less threatening? Um, and you said, well, don't think about that, about it like that. But so many people ca cannot think past the, the, the yeah. worries around Taiwan. Yeah, yeah. Well, I lived in Taiwan eighty four, eighty five. It's wonderful. It's it's a it's a Chinese civilization without any communist imprint. They used to be a dictatorship when I lived there, and now they're a vibrant democracy. So, uh, but at the same time, of course, uh, uh, they are clearly bound by what China sees as a one China policy, and we should honor that. Uh, status quo has served us well. Ambiguity has served us well. Uh, uh, China will not allow the kind of uh, independence of Taiwan, despite the fact that they actually look pretty independent in each and every sense of the word. So in a way, we have to honor that. It's all about deterrence, meaning giving Taiwan the, ch the chance to defend itself and have allies at the same time assurances that we are not crossing the line that Beijing sets on the one China policy. So in a way, also assurance that China should show in, by not lopping missiles over the island and trying to actually uh, withhold this kind of uh, grandstanding they sometimes do, I would say. In a way, it's, it's a hotspot, but it's not Ukraine. It's more important uh, to us because of the global supply chain, particularly on the chips, where 80% of the top-end chips come from one company that is based in Xinjiang. And if there would be a disruption, if there would be a blockade, if there would be a war, uh, I think globalization, as we know it, would come to a full stop. So it's also in Beijing's interest in order to stay away from this kind of confrontation. And frankly, every indication I have in the capital of China is they're not going down this road. It's all a bit about, you know, addressing the domestic crowd by saying Taiwan will be ours at one stage, but it's not immediate and not uh, anytime soon. I hope you're right. Uh, I notice uh, somebody suggesting, uh, Richard Maud suggesting from the Asian Society, former diplomat, that uh, Ursula von der Leyen's visit, who's the president of the European Commission, was, he thought, very successful and offered a real model for our prime minister. Now, what was the hallmark of that visit in your view? Well, in a way, she's from this uh, German Protestant school of ladies that actually says what how it is and and uh, doesn't mince. She does not mince her words. Uh, she's very direct, but very, very polite about it, and uh, she knows her facts. She's very, very well briefed. I had the honor of briefing her uh, team and herself in Brussels and in Beijing, and uh, so I think she had a good balance of bringing stuff uh, to the attention of the president that were possibly challenging for him because he doesn't hear very often direct criticism, but she did it in a way which I think was acceptable. Did it help? Well, not yet. So let's see if she uh, if she can actually continue down this road. Uh, she is not about show up and, and just uh, trying to look good and, and uh, pretend to be very influential. She's very humble in a way. And de-risking comes from her team and herself. It's all about defining the risks, uh, dealing with that and uh, carrying on with the rest of the business, which I think is 90% of our engagement economically with China. Gosh, Germany is going to be a bit 
dull, isn't it, by comparison, to go back and live there next year? Well, I'm not going back to Germany. I'm I'm turning 65, so it's the end of the route for my, my daytime job, but uh, I'm moving on to the U.S. And, oh, uh, you're going to the U.S.? I'm going to Washington, uh, uh, and my coach is Kevin Rudd, in a way. He's uh, my good old friend, and he's trying to lure me into the think, think tank world. But I'm keen to be a strategic advisor. My kids go to an American school in Beijing, so smooth transition is most important. And why not starting something fresh at 65? Oh, well, good luck. Thank you. As Jörger Wutka, uh, who is President Emeritus of the uh, EU Chamber in China, and he was visiting Australia this week as a guest of the Asia Society and uh, provoking a lot of you to hit, the, uh, to hit the text line. Thank you very much indeed. Wide variety of views. And I think we'll hear more of him. ABCRN helps you understand the world. Find more of our stories on the ABC Listen app.